Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, this is the second of three episodes on the rise of right-wing extremism in the United States. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episode one, you don't have to do it in order, but please do go back and give it a listen. In the meantime, I hope you'll learn as much from this interview as I did conducting it. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Yale Eisenstadt, Vice President of the Anti-Defamation League's Center for Technology and Society. In this role, she leads ADL's efforts to hold tech companies accountable for hate and extremism on their platforms. Prior to ADL, she served as an intelligence officer, diplomat, White House advisor, and as the head of global elections integrity for political advertising at Facebook. I have some things to talk to you about that. She holds an MA in international affairs from Johns Hopkins and is coming to us today from New York City. Yael, welcome to the show. Hi, Reid. Happy to be here. So you have quite an interesting background. So tell us a little bit about how you got started. So I see intelligence officer. What does that mean to the extent that you can tell us without killing us? <laughs> of course. Which, by the way, is the only thing I ever got put in Facebook jail for, for making a joke that if I told you, I'd have to kill you. And that comment got flagged. Um, yeah, so I started my government career in about 1999. In this pre-September 11th world, I started as a CIA analyst. So that's the intelligence world for a few years before moving over to the State Department and into the diplomatic corps. All right. So you started at Langley and then moved to Foggy Bottom for those of us inside the Beltway. Just as an aside, I used to play baseball at Langley Forks right next to CIA headquarters. And uh, that was in the late 80s. And my dad being, you know, one of the progenitors of dad jokes said, well, if anybody ever gets hurt, just start speaking Russian and guys will come out of the woods. That never happened, thankfully. But it was always weird to know that just on the other side of that stand of trees was that big glass building. So you move through the intelligence ranks, then you go to the State Department. But tell us about your work vis-a-vis -vis terrorism, because I was reading some of the things you've written, and it sounds like you spent some time overseas talking to people who maybe weren't the friendliest people to the United States. Sure. So like many of us, the career path sort of went down a more national security path after September 11th. For me, I sort of entered that world. I mean, I really was more focused on the counter-extremism world, which is a little bit different. It's thinking about how do you actually find ways to connect with people who are actually susceptible to terrorist messaging or susceptible to extremist messaging. And what are the ways to try to counter that hopefully before somebody is radicalized. So that's the world I dove into, especially I spent a few years overseas in East Africa, worked a lot on sort of counter-extremism issues with different communities, particularly along the Somalia border, sitting with people who were really 
vulnerable and susceptible to extremist messaging and doing what, I mean, this probably is not the politically correct term for it, but doing a lot of our so-called hearts and minds work in that space. Right. And in your experience, what were the root causes of somebody who could become an extremist or become radicalized? So just to put a time frame on it, I was there from 2004 to 2006. So this is pre-social media, or at least any form of social media that we know today. Right. That's pre-iPhone. Yes. And so this is in a world where the communities that I was really working with that were really the most susceptible to extremist messaging, they all, I often found the same characteristics. And that was, first and foremost, communities or individuals who felt disenfranchised, who did not feel specifically that their government was providing for them, who had real grievances, had no real outlets for how to get people to understand their grievances, and were vulnerable to other kind of messaging because they were marginalized, they were disenfranchised, there were real concerns they had in the world. I mean, there's all sorts of different characteristics that often play into how somebody can exploit those emotions or vulnerabilities in different ways. And so, yeah, there were a number of characteristics, but so often I found, and, and listen, I'm going to be very clear, there's no way to do this at a scale that can mean that we speak to every single person, but really most people, if you make it as simplistic as possible, just want to be heard. When you talk about the grievances, again, I mean, the border of Somalia and the border of Iowa, <laughs> right? Not only worlds apart literally, but worlds apart economically, socially, figuratively, everything else. And Somalia, even to this day, I think is a generally ungovernable space. So like these folks were, their grievances were not just about not being heard, but literally having one day to the next is a crapshoot. It's an arbitrary deal when you wake up in the morning. Absolutely. But also the extra factor here is these are Somalis that were living in Kenya. And so the reason I bring up marginalized or disenfranchised was the Kenyan government, were they providing for these communities? These communities were Kenyan citizens. They were living in Kenya. So to be clear, I'm on the Kenya side of the Somalia border in this. And it's that the government's not providing for them, hence the term marginalized. And of course, there's all the other factors you just mentioned. And so that's where someone else coming in and saying, well, I'm here to provide for you and I understand your grievances and starting to exploit that. And by the way, you know that this is the reason this is happening and this is the enemy and this like it starts to build upon itself. But yeah, those were the conditions that were always there to be ripe for exploitation. So take us through the process a little bit. So I'm a marginalized individual on the border of Somalia in Kenya, but on the border of Somalia. How do you approach me? What does that process look like? I don't know that there was like a rule book or a playbook. But it really was about spending a lot of time first meeting with different community leaders, religious leaders. And then once I gained their trust, sometimes they would bring me into women's groups or to youth groups or to their version of a town hall or to their elders meetings. It's time intensive because it is about listening more than speaking. It is about finding common, I know people don't love the term finding common ground, 
But it was about like, you don't have to agree with me. I don't have to agree with you. But seeing each other as human beings. I mean, that was really the core thing, right? Because I was often, listen, I'm sort of all the things, right? I'm a female. I'm American. I've got this very Jewish name. I'm walking into communities and who have never met someone like me before. And so a lot of it was just respectful dialogue, including respectful disagreement. And that, you know, I always found that to be a key foundation. And listen, I'm not going to go into extreme details because a lot of this is work that I don't always talk about. But I will say I know for a fact that that paid off. Like not only did I actually make real friendships and real relationships, but years later, if we needed to go back and call on members of communities to help us understand something or to help us with something like there was real outcomes there that mattered. So I want to read something that you wrote about extremism, not overseas, but in the United States. So that leaves it to us, private citizens. It is up to us to push ourselves to engage in open dialogue, to bring people together in discussion groups around dinner tables on television and movies. While the cable networks may continue to seek profit over the greater good, I am certain there are enough private citizens, philanthropists, and activists who care as much as I do about this issue to start a movement, however small, to start healing this nation. This was an article you wrote called American Hate is a Bigger Threat Than Foreign Terrorism, which is interesting, but you wrote it June 17th, 2016. Yeah, I was hoping you were going to mention the date, right? Like I actually wrote it before then, and that's when it published. So this was before the election in 2016. This was before I went and worked at Facebook. It was just this moment in time where things were getting more and more heated. And it was very clear, you know, I'd spent all these years so focused on these extremism threats abroad, on how to ensure that people were not being radicalized in certain communities. And all of a sudden it like hit me over the head that this was becoming a bigger problem here. That was my very first article that I really published. It had none of the full answers yet. It was just a wake-up call as someone who was deeply involved in the counter-extremism and counter-terrorism world for so many years. Hey, Americans, we are becoming a bigger problem. The funny thing is, that title, American Hate, is a bigger threat than foreign terrorism. I actually pushed back on the editor. I didn't like the title. It felt too extreme. It felt too, even though it was exactly what I was saying. I mean, now it seems sort of quaint, right, in 2023. <laughs> but back then, it was the one thing I was like, am I really ready to say that? And as we've seen, I, I think that has really played out. You know, the reason I brought that up was because it is almost seven years ago to the day that it published. And you know, you could have written it today and it would have been more true if such a thing could be more true. And you mentioned in that article, the Pulse nightclub here, we could discuss Allen, Texas. And so the number of these events that you were referencing vis-a-vis -vis domestic terror, which is what I'm going to call it, because I don't think at this point it's an overstatement, you know, it's continued. And I don't know if it's grown apace, but it's certainly continuing. And so from your perspective, as someone who worked overseas to see this, what are the things that you've seen, let's just call it since you wrote that piece, vis-a-vis -vis extremism and radicalization that you've seen in this country that worried you then, and does it still worry you now? 
after I wrote that piece is when I really started digging in. I mean, you'll notice in that piece, I wasn't singling out social media. I mention it, but I'm not singling it out. And I think that's an important thing for people to remember because this kind of sort of fear-based anger, disillusionment, all these things did not get invented by a company like Facebook. What I was very concerned about first when the cable news networks became this 24-7 need for infotainment, that's why I actually called out the cable news networks in that piece. But then the way social media could basically, to, in the most simplest terms, read, radicalize people at a scale that I used to see in the analog world that used to take real time and human effort was just suddenly being ramped up at a scale never seen before. And with actual systems that could even better identify who is vulnerable, who is susceptible to this kind of messaging, and how can we continue to pump that messaging to them? Like that used to take a lot of work. I mean, yes, I spent a few years in Kenya, but I've worked in the counter-extremism world for years. I was the senior officer at the National Counterterrorism Center. Like I watched this and had hands-on experience for years on what was the process to radicalize someone. And I'm not saying that it's 100% social media at all, but I am saying that social media in the way that it's designed and monetized and just the way it works was taking something that used to be a very human-to-human recruitment process and just amped it up at a scale that became really, truly terrifying. I mean, to use a bad metaphor, it's sort of like a, uh, you know, a small brush fire on the plains. And then suddenly you add, you know, 50 or 60 mile an hour gusts of wind. And before you know it, it's not just a little brush fire. You know, it's this raging wildfire. And now it's out of control. And let me ask you this, because I, I interviewed a woman. She's a professor of psychology on an episode that'll air next month about the different generations. And I'm getting back to social media, which is in 2012, amongst younger Americans, we see a massive spike in depression. And that's about the time that social media is really coming online. And that we know you worked at Facebook for a brief time. We know for a fact that places like Instagram, this isn't necessarily extremism, but it does have to do with how these things work. Instagram knew that its algorithm was bad for teenage girls and they did it anyway. I remember actually three years ago, almost to the day, the first ad that we ran that got inside the former president's head got flagged on Facebook for being, quote unquote, misleading because we had this line in it. Donald Trump cares more about Wall Street than Main Street, and it got flagged as misleading. So I had a friend who was a pretty senior person at Facebook, and I said, can you get this flag taken off? They're like, nothing I can do about it. I'm like, there's nothing you can do about it? That's not misleading. And the guy was like, sorry, nothing I can do about it. I'm like, you have thousands of groups running around this platform, Proud Boys, Bugaloos, white supremacists, everything else, who are doing God knows what on your watch. And you're telling me the line cares more about Wall Street than Main Street is misleading? And he's like, what do you want me to do, dude? That is such an interesting example for lots of reasons, which I'm happy to get into since obviously this gets into my role. But before I do, I realize I didn't answer the second half of your last question. Am I still worried about it today? You know, it's interesting. So now I'm at ADL. I head the Center for Tech and Society here. And this is what we do every day, right? We work on 
how anti-Semitism, hate, harassment, extremism proliferates online and what that means for actual victims of all this. Am I still worried about this today? Yes, and even more so. Let's be clear. You don't have to look any further than Pittsburgh, Poway, Buffalo. All three of those mass shooters, they were all exposed to hateful anti-Semitic conspiracy theories on social media prior to carrying out those attacks. And so that is, to me, a really good explanation of what I'm talking about, how individuals are getting radicalized. Do I know if all three of those shooters would have been mass shooters had social media not exist? Of course, you can't prove that negative. But those shooters, they were online, had their grievances. This online world is feeding to them that your government doesn't care about you and everybody's not taking care of your grievances. And then they're exposing them to all these, especially it always starts with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Space lasers and the media and banks. All those things. Whereas, again, I just keep emphasizing this because people who love to discredit people like me or people who speak about these things. I have never said social media is the only thing. Obviously, we have huge societal issues that even led these three young men to be this angry and to go down this path. But do we know for a fact that those three mass shooters went online specifically looking for conspiracy theories? Or did the social media platforms feed it to them? Right? Like that's the whole Is it a mirror to society? I would argue only if every single one of those people who were radicalized online actually went online specifically searching for this content, which I am not convinced these three shooters were. So I just wanted to sort of wrap up that last question. Right. No, but you know, that's interesting because I was talking to somebody about this topic and, and they sort of thought about it, you know, we think about the early 80s in Reagan with supply-side economics, right? If you provide enough supply, it'll find a market. And American extremism seems to be a supply-side economy. If you put enough of it out there, you'll find your customers. Yeah. I mean, listen, American politics have always been predicated on a culture of fear. This is not new, right? Well, yeah. And I was just, in fact, I've got it up on my laptop right now, Yael. Buchanan's 92 Republican convention speech. I was on the floor of the convention in Houston as a 16-year-old when he gave that speech and the reaction, right, from a bunch of delegates who were George H.W. Bush voters, right, and the air, the oxygen, it sucked out of the room. So this has always existed in our society. What has changed, though? What has made it feel so much more dangerous? I would say it not just feel, but actually reality, if we accept, which I do, that domestic terrorism has actually exponentially increased, is that harnessing that anger to a point where you're able to actually, machines are able to actually identify an individual online who's going to be most susceptible to that messaging and push them towards it. Even then, you still had to show up at that convention. You still had to make a decision that I am going to go to this convention because this is my party or this is my politics or this is what I'm interested in, which would be very different than you thinking you're going to go out for ice cream and the next thing you know, you're sort of steered down the path to that convention. I know that seems like a silly comparison. No, but it's the right point. It's the right point, which is the digital world has allowed, look, you and I are sitting 1,500 miles apart, 2,000 miles apart doing this. And we can see each other. We're recording our voices. And so we could do that. But there was a time when not that long ago, if we wanted to do this, maybe we would have had to do it 
you would have needed to be in a radio station. I would have needed to be in a radio station. It would have taken 15 people to sort of hook up all this stuff, or we would have had to do it in person, right? So I would have gotten on an airplane and flown to New York to see you. None of that is necessary now. There's zero friction between the individual and that information. But if you talk about like the tree of life or any of these shootings that are predicated El Paso, predicated on a racial discrimination, it's not just that the information was available to them. It's also that the weaponry with which they carried it out was so readily available. So there's no friction there either. You can do it from the point of zero to 100 takes almost no effort for the individual who's susceptible to this. So it's interesting you use the word friction, which I've been using for years. Even in my talk, I think I call it a world optimized for frictionless virality. That was the phrase I used quite a number of years ago. And why is that so important? Because, yes, one can argue, but isn't there human agency? Of course, like there's always a counter argument, of course. But listen, whether you're on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, YouTube, wherever you are, TikTok, when you see something that spikes your emotions, not just negative, it could also be extremely positive. That is what is making you want to stay on and get more. Yeah, that dopamine rush. Right. And without any friction that makes you stop, question why you had that reaction, take a breath, and really like get your cognitive faculties together on like, did that make me mad because it was real? Or did that make me mad because it was intended to make me mad? Like there's none of that friction involved. And that is why when we talk about things like the online rabbit holes, for example, that's what it means, right? You don't even realize you're going further and further and further because there's nothing stopping you. There's not something just simply popping up and saying, are you sure you still want to watch this? Or would you rather watch something else instead? You know, even Twitter back in the day did an experiment. I think this was ahead of the 2020 election. Because so many of us, so many people were arguing for adding more friction into the system. Because back to my very early days along the Somalia border, active listening was one of the key ingredients. There are zero mechanisms in today's social media world that encourage active listening. You would have to build in so much friction for that. And Twitter actually tried an experiment, I believe, ahead of the 2020 election to build in some friction as a method to try to slow the spread of disinformation, right? So they weren't becoming the so-called arbiters of truth. They were building in friction. If you wanted to retweet something, it would ask you, have you read this? It's such a small intervention, but it's something that makes your brain stop. And it's something that makes you go, huh, do I? And the interesting thing is they did prove that it slowed the spread of Miss and disinformation. And the more interesting thing is they stopped the program after the election. Of course. <laughs> so that's the infuriating part. Well, I think about the friction, though, in the context of digital and social media in like thinking about when I went to my grandmother's house, you know, when I was a kid in the 80s and she got a morning newspaper, which she read every morning with her coffee. And then she went on about her day and she had an evening newspaper which she read, you know, and it probably came at four or whatever it was. But the point was, then she made dinner, whatever she went on about her day. And then she had, you know, Paul Harvey, right? Think about how old that is, right? Paul Harvey on the whatever local radio station she had on in the house all day. And then she watched Dan Rather religiously every night. But those were the three main sources of, let's say, news and information. It wasn't that she wasn't out talking to people or she wasn't having discussions because she was very politically active. But the friction in that context is time. It's not milliseconds, it's not seconds, it's not minutes. It's hours between 
interacting with that information, which I believe, and maybe you guys have done some research, that actually lets the brain sort of marinate on whatever it is it took in. So then it can make, even if you don't know you're doing it, a somewhat more informed either decision or opinion on something. Yeah. So a few points on this. Before I came to ADL, I was working on a project with the Institute for Security and Technology that actually we worked with neuroscientists to look at how technologies were affecting our cognition. And that goes to your last point, right? Like we were really looking at how does our critical thinking work? How does technology affect it? To your point, even just having the time to step away from how technology is interacting with your brain is hugely important. But, you know, I've been talking about this for years. There be people have been talking about this for years before I even started. And some can say, okay, we've heard you. We've heard you say the same thing for so many years now. Move on. And yet here I am again at ADL. I want to be very clear. In a time when anti-Semitic incidents are at an all-time high since ADL started tracking those numbers in 1979, and last year alone, incidents were up by 36%. Like, this is not just I'm screaming because I don't like Facebook, which is what some people love to think about me. I don't like Facebook, so you're not going to hurt my feelings. <laughs> right, but like, I am still fighting this fight because look where we are right now. Like, this is a very real threat. And the real threat there is the normalization of hate the normalization of racism, the normalization of anti-Semitism, of anti-LGBTQ sentiment, the more that this is being fed to us online, the more that it is surfacing unchecked, the more that it is becoming normalized, the more we are seeing actual, real, offline harm. Right. It jumps the air gap. Yeah. So it is very real. So between 1979 now and where we are in 2023, did you see a particular spike? Has it been in the last decade? When did it go from always concerning, always concerning, always concerning to, oh my gosh. In the, the last few years. Okay. In the last few years in particular. I mean, again, I'll repeat this statistic. Last year alone, incidents were up 36% from the year before. That's a huge spike. And, you know, again, I, I mentioned the shooter in Allen, Texas, right? There's a swastika on his chest. There's an SS flash tattooed on his arm. You know, my family left. I don't know, you know, how it is with the diaspora in Eastern Europe. It could have been Ukraine. It could have been Lithuania. It could have been Poland. But they left in the early 1900s, long before the Soviets, long before the Nazis, because they were just sick of getting beat up by the Cossacks. And so they came to this country. But I want to read something from a friend of mine. We were texting the other day, and he said this because he and his family are Jewish. He said, my sister, an uber-progressive, is thinking of buying a gun. This is what the world has come to. They lined our family up and shot them in Europe. We aren't going to make that mistake again. That's pretty scary because that's how in the United States in 2023, his family, who some were lost in the Holocaust, that's how they feel now. Yeah. And let's be very real. First and foremost, it is devastating to hear that that is how that family feels. You know, it's funny, even before I came to ADL, I was not focused on anti-Semitism. I was focused on radicalization and on this whole counter-extremism. And it has just been so devastating how 
this has come to a situation where like actual Jewish Americans in the United States of America are scared. Like that has not fully sunk in. But part of it to what you just mentioned, right? So there's also all the perfect storm there. People are afraid. People don't feel like they're being protected by their own governments. There's all this other situations going on, whether it's like the fear of climate change, which is very real and feeding into people's fears, or whether it's income inequality, which is feeding into like people absolutely having very real daily struggles. All of these things, as I said at the outset, they're the perfect recipe also to prey on. I mean, I want to even if I can give you another example, like let's go back to Facebook for a minute. They know this is happening. They've had opportunity after opportunity to fix it. The perfect example, if you look at like the troves of documents that were leaked during the Facebook papers, one of the ones that didn't get enough media attention that perfectly demonstrates what I had been screaming about before and others in the space have been screaming about before, just go read the article called Carol's Journey to QAnon. Right. So you had it was an internal Facebook experiment. This was Facebook's own researchers that worked inside the company. And what did they do? They had set up this fake account, called her Carol. They modeled her after a politically conservative mom in North Carolina. They had her follow a few political accounts, but didn't have her express actual interest in conspiracy theories or any particular content. Within two days, the Facebook algorithm was recommending her QAnon groups. Not just like content, but that she join QAnon groups. Here's what's even more interesting. She didn't join any, right? She actually didn't take the prompt. And yet within one week, researchers, again, Facebook's own internal researchers, said that Carol's Facebook experience was, and I'm quoting here, I'm reading a quote, a barrage of extreme conspiratorial and graphic content. And I want to double down on why that matters. First of all, it doesn't matter if it's just a small percentage of users who are radicalized through these recommendation engines or through these algorithms. It matters that it happens at all because a small percentage can still equal millions of people. And this research proves Facebook knew that their own tools were radicalizing people and helping QAnon grow a full year before they even started taking action. You know, I think if this goes the wrong way in the shorter long term for us, Yao, I think the prologue could be they knew it and they did it anyway. A hundred percent. And it's not just Facebook. It could be CNN. They knew it and they did it anyway. Many friends that I used to work with in politics, they knew it and they did it anyway. And that's the part to me, because you talk about it's just the Carol experiment, but for every fake Carol, there's a hundred real Carols or a hundred real Kevins. And to use a bad medical analogy, it's like it starts with one cancer cell somewhere in your body and it spreads. And before you know it, it's overtaking, you know, your vital organs and it's in control now. And listen, too much of this debate is about like whether it was intentional. Personally, I actually don't care if any of this was intentional on the part of Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like, do I think Mark Zuckerberg set out to scale a company that would contribute to radicalizing people? No, I don't think that was his intent. I mean, his intent was to rate college girls' hotness on campus. Let's be clear, that was his intent. You know, every time I see a picture of him, I'm still upset he's not Jesse Eisenberg. 
from the social <laughs> Well, it's network. just funny that people forget <laughs> Facebook's origin story, like it was created for some great purpose. But the thing is, I use, well, I don't use Facebook anymore, but I use Instagram. I love social media. I love all the good about it. But whether or not he intended for these things to happen, he certainly cannot say he didn't know. Maybe he didn't know early on. Even when I was there and was highlighting, trying to build out processes to ensure that voter suppression wasn't happening in political ads, they can't say they didn't know. I mean, I ended a talk months and months before January 6th. My TED Talk ends with describing exactly how this was going to lead to post-election violence if Facebook allowed this to continue to happen. And I even say in it, you cannot say you didn't know if post-election violence happens. And you know what's interesting? I was actually talking to Mary Trump in the summer of 2020. And I said, if the president loses, will he go quietly? And she said, absolutely not. And I said, why not? She said, because the only thing he cares about is his personal safety, whether or not his body is going to be safe. And he sits inside a fortress protected by men and women who take an oath to lay their lives down for him. So he'll do whatever it is he thinks he can get away with. And that's why we started saying, if he loses, this isn't going to go the way you think it's going to go. So there were multiple different avenues to come to that conclusion. The problem is now, even in May of 2023, there's still too many people who don't buy it, that this stuff is real. And that's where I can really lay a lot of the blame on social media. And obviously, certain cable news hosts. I'll say his name. His name is Tucker Carlson, and he's being helped out by his buddy Elon Musk. I'll do it for you. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> so this is where even when I try to make it very clear that I don't blame Facebook for everything, I don't blame Twitter for everything, the fact that not only whether it was a Stop the Steal movement or any other forms of disinformation and misinformation about elections, about results, about all of it was allowed to flourish online, but the Proud Boys, the QAnon supporters, the Boogaloo Boys, like all of these groups really grew and flourished on some mainstream tech platforms, including Facebook. And so to say that, yes, a lot of our political issues have many, many factors at play, but social media absolutely cannot avoid their role in helping stoke that kind of following and conspiratorial thinking that led ultimately to an insurrection. Yeah, look, I mean, Tucker, Alex Jones, right? They built the truck stops, but Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whoever you want to use, like they built the highways to get these people to the truck stops. Before, these folks were literally and figuratively stuck up in the woods of northern Idaho, disconnected intentionally from the rest of the world. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying before. It's about normalizing what before might have been more on the fringes, normalizing hate speech, normalizing conspiratorial thinking, normalizing anti-Semitism, normalizing all of that. And let's just be very clear of where we are today, because right now, everybody's now looking at the next shiny object, right? So many people are moving their thinking to whether ChatGPT is going to fix or destroy the world. This is the AI sort of text generator. 
Correct. Sorry, this is a generative AI tech generator from OpenAI called ChatGPT, but all generative AI tools. I just said ChatGPT because I know that's what many people are familiar with. And I think there's lots of lessons that we should learn from some of the ways that these harms proliferated on social media and think very seriously how to build the right guardrails in now. But the reason I brought up generative AI is let us not have this huge sort of doomsday conversation about generative AI make us forget that there are so many other things that still haven't been fixed. Like we haven't even talked about the gaming industry, right? Like my team here at ADL, this was a lot of this was very new to me before coming here has done really groundbreaking work. We do an annual representative survey of the online games industry with gamers. And the amount of gamers who are not just experiencing hate and harassment in games, but are actually exposed to white supremacy ideology is pretty stunning. And we report on this every year. So whether it's the social media industry or the gaming industry, and now whatever's coming next, like we have to still fix the problems of these other companies and not just immediately shift to the next shiny object. And we have to use those lessons to really think about, listen, I think generative AI has incredible potential to do amazing things, whether in the medical industry or, I mean, in all sorts of different ways. But these very things that you and I have been talking about today, people are going to want to shove them aside and go back to calling people like me an alarmist if I say, but you have to consider the way these same tools could also exacerbate hate, harassment, extremism, and let's figure this out now as opposed to after it's too late. Well, I mean, you know, Jack Teixeira, the kid in the Air National Guard who leaked all these classified documents, he shared them on a Discord server, which is Discord is a social media platform mainly related to online gaming. I went to Discord. I didn't know what the hell it was. Right. I still couldn't tell you how I'm supposed to figure out how to make it work. Right. <laughs> That's because we're old. Discord is quite popular. <laughs> right. We're old. Yeah. But the point is, you talk about AI like we don't even like there's a lot of us who consider ourselves responsible for some of this stuff who don't even understand what's already at work, to your point. But, you know, let me ask you this. So now, you know, I don't want to put it necessarily in the political context, but so much of this now has become wrapped up into one because. Again, when I mention the extremists, you know, the Aryan nations, the order of the 80s, right, or Ruby Ridge and, you know, Randy Weaver. Again, these were people who were separatists and they were separate. They had a, a loathsome, often anti-Semitic, almost exclusively anti-Semitic, although they didn't like anybody that wasn't a white Christian. They were separated by definition from the rest of the country, physically and otherwise. They were not part of the mainstream. But now the extremism, to your point, has been mainstreamed and weaved in pretty significantly to the political process, which is, yes, you can call January 6th sedition and insurrection on the United States, but at the behest of a political leader. And so this is part of it that's frustrating to me, and I think frustrating to all of us, is that there was a time not so long ago that when David Duke was running for governor of Louisiana in 1991, the George H.W. Bush White House sent a bunch of Republican operatives to Louisiana to make sure he did not win to make sure that he was never, ever, ever as a Republican going to represent the Republican Party in a general election, even in the state of Louisiana. Now, you could call it an integral part of an electoral strategy, which I think we're not used to in this country. And maybe we're not prepared individually or collectively 
to really grasp that. I mean, you, you always say you're, you know, an alarmist. I call myself your friendly neighborhood Cassandra. I have to explain to people at water polo games, right, about things. And they're like, that's not going to happen. I'm like, okay. Oh, yeah. I've been called a Cassandra for many, many years. You know, I'm going to take it back to some of Facebook's own evidence on this. Again, I know I keep throwing in these caveats, but sometimes, unfortunately, because we're in such an absolutist world right now, everybody loves to say, so you either hate technology or you love technology. You think it's all this person's fault or that. I want to be crystal, crystal clear. I actually do believe that having more voices surface makes for a healthier democracy. I actually think that breaking down some of the traditional gatekeepers is what gives rise, especially to certain civil rights movements and to BLM movement and to really important voices and work. But that doesn't excuse everything else we're talking about. And I, I want to give one more example because you were talking about politics and political parties, right? Again, political messaging, it's always been sort of fear-based and stoking up people's emotions and all of that. But here is the social media factor that is just so insane to me. I mean, in addition to like the way social media is currently, especially the biggest platforms, currently designed to monetize, it also really feeds all of our narcissistic tendencies. Whether we are super narcissistic or only minorly, any human who claims they don't have an ego, I would love to meet that person. We all have an ego. So social media plays off of that perfectly and the most narcissistic seem to be the most present online because the online world is feeding that. But another one of the Facebook papers that was shown during the big document leaks was this piece that was showing, again, internal Facebook research. So I just want to be very clear. These were Facebook employees who did this research. So you can't say they didn't know. That show that European politicians, I don't remember the percentages off the top of my head, but the research showed that European politicians were using more and more extreme rhetoric in their online whether it was advertising or whether it was how they were speaking online, because they knew that is what the algorithm would boost. So people learn, they learn what does the algorithm want. If I want to win in a political race today, I have to have a huge presence online. And I know that in order to have that huge presence online, I have to speak a certain way. And they did a study that showed that not only did European politicians adopt more and more extreme language online, but the more important takeaway from that research was, which then when elected, made them adopt more extreme policies as actual legislators and policymakers. That is the thing that is extra terrifying. Right. Well, again, it's the digital becomes the analog. And it's so easy for us to forget that we still live in the temporal world. Like you breathe, you got to eat, you got to sleep, you got to drink water, got to go get some exercise. But the digital world is now having a real impact on the analog world, and we cannot and should not forget that. Yeah, like these guys are playing Grand Theft Auto or whatever, but some of what they see and hear on that chat that I assume is going by right as they're playing is going to find some place in their brain, right, that hits some trigger. Theoretically, it's not everyone, obviously, but it could be enough. But to your point, let me ask you this. When someone first gets that taste of extremism online and then they're fed more and more of it, does the brain now go looking for it? Have you guys seen anything like that? That's a great question. I think that some of the group that I worked with, I told you when I was working with the neuroscientists, I do think that they were proving some of that. It's the same thing of when you are fed more and more sugar, do you want more and more sugar? 
It's almost like any addiction, right? And I don't, I know that people are tired of the social media addiction conversation. They shouldn't be. It's a very real conversation, but it's any addiction, right? So if you're addicted to sugar, the more sugar you're fed, the more sugar you're going to want. Same with alcohol, same with gambling. And I'm going to assume same with social media dopamine hits. Right. So we got only a couple minutes left here. What else should we know about what you and your team are doing at ADL? Sure. So, I mean, lest you think it's all doom and gloom and we're not actually like, what do we, I, I can't wrap it up with how do we fix it all. But, you know, my team in particular, what we focus on is not just how this is manifesting online, right? We work in lockstep with our teammates here on the Center for Extremism who really do the cutting edge work and what are all the terrible things happening online. But we really look at how do we, we do a few things. We work directly with companies who are still good faith actors, the ones that are, on helping them identify these things, figure out how to handle them. I mean, for example, you can look at one of our more recent products. We did a Holocaust denial scorecard. We looked at what does Holocaust denial look like across 10 different platforms and gaming companies? How are they interacting with users when users report it? And then how are they interacting with us as a trusted flagger when we report it? And then we do a scorecard. And some of the companies that really want to do better, we get in touch with them. We walk them through it. We show them the report card. And they, like, I mean, even Facebook. Facebook did not want to have a Holocaust denial policy. Like, Mark Zuckerberg did not have that. That took a lot of intervention. And this was before I came to ADL, but including ADL, really pushing for this. So we do, like, help with some of that where it's clear that the whole self-governance model is not going to happen. We also work on what are the other levers, right? Like we are very involved with what are some of the legislative and regulatory levers, very big on transparency legislation, not just for transparency's sake, but at the end of the day, smart policy can only be made when we actually have transparency around what is happening at a company. So like, for example, you know, we were very involved in getting transparency legislation in California. We are big champions of AB 587. I don't want to run through the whole list, but this is just giving you a flavor of the types of things we do. We really want to look at how can we help also our government really think through how do you differentiate between speech and protecting free speech, which we are very fundamental believers here. Like, how could we not believe in free speech if we are supporters of all of these movements. But how do you differentiate between that and between a company's own behavior and tools that are leading to these devastating consequences? So these are the types of things we work on here. We have a sort of like 360 approach, right? We work with companies. We work with civil society activists. We work with governments. These things cannot just be in like I know I get it. We all have our phones and we all have social media and we all have the convenience but government's job is to protect the citizens of their country. And so we do have to figure out how can we still enjoy technology while having basic guardrails in place to protect, especially those most vulnerable. I want to actually make this last point if anybody is still listening at this point. Oh, they listen all the way to the end. Don't you worry. All right. You better listen all the way to the end. <laughs> Many people don't realize is a lot of what we're talking about, right? Whether it's the extreme voices online, the swarms of hate and harassment, the people who are the most silenced online are actually the victims of that. And, and I bring this up. It's the marginalized communities that are actually the ones whose free speech is being silenced, right? Like right now in particular, the amount of hate and harassment 
both in the real world, but online, being targeted at the LGBTQ plus community, at the trans community. I mean, look at any comment feed on any ADL tweet or any tweet from somebody here, like the amount of hate and harassment that is thrown at us, it is meant to silence us. And so that is a really important thing people need to remember as well. And where can we find uh, your group's work online and where can we find you online? I guess I used to answer this with on Twitter, which I don't use that much anymore. On Blue Sky, when you all get invited in, my handles are always just my full name, that Yale Eisenstadt. For our work, I mean, there's ADL's website, Center for Technology and Society is on that website. ADL is present on most social media platforms. So you find, we're not hard to find out there. Absolutely. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. As we beat the hell out of social media companies, there we are because that's where everybody is. Yale Eisenstadt, thank you so much for your time today and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.